Hello, and welcome to today's podcast, where we'll be joined by two authors of an upcoming publication in the Annals of ATS titled Profiling, Privacy, and Protection, Ethical Guidance When Police Are Present at the Bedside. We'll be discussing a timely and important topic, how to navigate care of patients who are in the custody of law enforcement. But first, a disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are the participants and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the authors affiliated universities and healthcare systems, nor the Department of Veterans Affairs or the United States government. I'm Chris Warsham, a pulmonologist and intensivist at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, and co-chair of the Early Career Working Group of the ATS Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly. We're joined today by Dr. Matt Griffith and Dr. Kathleen Atkin. Dr. Matt Griffith is an assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the Rocky Mountain Regional VA Medical Center and the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado. He is an investigator at the Denver Seattle VA Health Services Research and Development Center of Innovation and is the co-director of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Colorado. Dr. Kathleen Atkin is an associate professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine with an adjunct appointment with the Yale School of Nursing. She serves as a staff physician at the VA Connecticut under medicine in the section of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, where she is the director of the medical intensive care unit. She is the chair of the ATS Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee and the senior author of the paper we'll be discussing today. So let's jump right in. Kathleen, can you tell us a bit about the origins of this article? Sure, thank you so much, Chris, for the invitation for Matt and I to discuss this. Um, and wanna also be sure that we're, we're declaring this as coming as an effort from the Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee as a group. When the fall of 2020, we were trying to consider the various groups that are perhaps not getting consideration or not getting the appropriate ethical treatment during clinical care in the intensive care unit. And our colleagues, Jim O'Brien, from the Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee had raised some of these important questions to our group and asked about opportunities we had in order to better outline what the challenges are and potential strategies to improve ethical, fair uh, treatment for patients who are in the intensive care unit and also under police custody. Through Jim's suggestions, I was able to uh, meet and, and work with a number of colleagues, including Matt here, who was able to lead this really important writing that we submitted for Annals of ATS. Matt, I wonder if you want to give some, um, some of your perspective on how we were able to put together some of our, our questions and solutions. Sure. Thanks, Kathleen. Yeah, I uh, got involved through um, uh, Jim O'Brien, who she mentioned, one of the members of the Ethics and Conflicts of Interest Committee, who's uh, attending locally here in Denver, and uh, I'm in touch with everyone. And, and uh, prior to being contacted, um, as kind of co-director of the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, for our division with Amin Sergu, another one of the authors in the paper, we had given a talk about some of these issues for our division because many of us had had encounters with police working at county hospitals and our university hospital. Um, and a lot of us were left with more questions uh, after these encounters than answers and not sure what we should have done. A lot of guilt and regret and questioning, did I do the right thing? And, and so we gave a talk on this topic um, that I think Jim heard 
and um, and so asked us to be involved with writing this. And, and a lot of the topics that we address in the paper came from issues experienced by, by our faculty here, by um, faculty uh, places we trained before coming to Colorado, and then through kind of reaching out to people and legal ex experts through the Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee. Great, and I agree. It's challenging to know what to do. And I think a lot of us uh, who have experience taking care of patients who are in custody can reflect back on that and wonder, did I do the right thing? Was I uh, maintaining privacy? Was I uh, letting people get involved in decision-making in an appropriate way? So what privacy protections are afforded to patients in custody? And to what extent are we obligated to provide information and updates to law enforcement? Since obviously we need to provide some information to them, uh, but we also wanna protect the privacy of patients. Yeah, that's a, a really important question, Chris. And I think requires ongoing uh, reflection among the treatment teams to think about what the bare minimum is that's necessary to share with police officers at the bedside and, and also is going to be affected by um, the status of the person if they're in custody and if they're charged with a crime or not. Um, however, overall, we are to share the, the minimum needed to fulfill the obligations of the healthcare of the um, legal representation at the bedside. And there are strategies we could use in order to make sure that we are excusing ourselves from the presence of police officers, for example, if it's somebody who's unable to make decisions for themselves. Um, but it, it can be a, a difficult path to navigate and also requires a fair amount of input and relationship building with legal representation from the institution. Yeah, and I agree. And one of the words that you used is kind of important. It's the word obligated. And I think that uh, HIPAA, which kind of is really the main uh, sort of policy document that defines when and who we're allowed to share patient information with, really doesn't outline obligation. It, it, it says there are certain uh, scenarios, such as the presence of a court order or warrant, where we must share certain PHI. And then there are other situations outlined in HIPAA where we're allowed to share PHI, and we kind of outline those in the paper. But you find that most of the um, most patient information is remains protected, kind of regardless of this custody status, unless it is a you know directly related to the safety of the law enforcement environment, such as a communicable disease, or to the patient, making law enforcement aware that a patient has a particular medical condition that they need to be treating while the patient is in custody in a facility. But in terms of updates and um, kind of this protect goals of care and things that are not necessarily relevant to the safety of the patient or law enforcement, there really isn't a clear guidance on what is obligated versus allowed versus um, not allowed. And when it comes to, this is a similar topic, when it comes to, like you said, the goals of care discussions or, or even sort of day-to-day decision-making, depending on the clinical status of the patient, are there any rules to go by when it comes to um, who is making proxy decisions if the patient can't make their own decisions, uh, who, uh, uh, if the patient can make their own decisions, uh, if, if the law enforcement agency does have some say over those decisions, uh, is there, are there better or worse ways to navigate factoring in all of the 
various stakeholders here while also recognizing that patient autonomy should be first when it is permissible by law. Yeah, um, another uh, kind of good and tough question where there isn't a lot of guidance in terms of how involved should law enforcement officers be involved in patient decision-making? I mean, really there's no, um, there's, there's not a lot of guidance on how, when to involve them or how beyond the things that we just mentioned. Um, so, you know, we recommend that um, law enforcement officials be um, asked to step outside and not be part of a lot of these discussions. And um, that's something that a provider at bedside can do. But often, again, leaving these ethical decisions to the providers at bedside to say like each nurse that enters the room, each physician that enters the room has to engage and set a new set of rules with each kind of daily change and shift of law enforcement officers at the bedside creates like so many opportunities to like lead unethical behavior. Because just like saying, I had a rough day today, I had so many patients, I just didn't have the uh, wherewithal to ask someone to step away from the bedside. It just, that was too much for me. I just went ahead and did my job and didn't really pay attention. And, and leaving that decision each day in each scenario to the bedside providers is, is a challenge. Um, we had scenarios, specifically related to your question, we had scenarios brought up by our faculty where law enforcement officials attempted to um, change goals of care or to, you know, a patient that wished to be on comfort care, the law enforcement official said, oh, hold, hold on, uh, you know, we're not sure that that's okay uh, yet. Let's, we're going to talk to our superior officers because uh, the patient was in their custody. And if the patient passed away, they were concerned that there would be ramifications for them. And so, you know, that's clearly not something that they should have the right to be involved in. Um, but again, the providers at bedside were left with this decision of, do I honor my patient and their surrogates wishes that they've expressly stated to me or the law enforcement officials, which society tells me I need to um, defer to? Um, again, a lot of these decisions are made at the bedside and that's, that's probably not the best location for them. I think what else is hard there is, is as Matt is, is emphasizing that this is gonna be idiosyncratic decision-making based on the person that is at the bedside trying to figure out if this is an appropriate place for law enforcement to have a say or not. But many of us might not feel as comfortable to even raise that question. And so to put that, that burden on individual bedside providers, I think just risks a lot of potential uh, deference to law enforcement and disempowerment of healthcare providers to advocate for the safety and treatment of their patients that, that they're um, seeking to do most ethically appropriate. And that's a nice lead in to the next question I had. Um, if I think back on times where I've had patients in custody who are shackled to the bed, a lot of times I've been able to talk to the law enforcement officer and say, look, this, this person is you know, either unconscious or really sick or really uncomfortable. Is this degree of restraint necessary? And oftentimes they can kind of move it up the chains and, and either remove them altogether or, or make the patient significantly more comfortable. So when it comes to um, how patients are restrained, what are some of the considerations there and, and what are our options if there's disagreements between what we think is appropriate clinically and what a law enforcement officer um, might think is, is appropriate from the uh, uh, custody side? That one is particularly sticky. I think if the if the person is convicted of a crime, then the requirements for them to be restrained with handcuffs might be different from someone who's just in custody and other 
purposes, but also I think, well, that could be the case. I think it, it's kind of on us as the, the leaders in the ICU to try to say, does this still make sense if somebody's obtunded or in a coma or something like that to, to have physical restraints in place? We wouldn't otherwise do that medically. And if medical conditions change the scenario for that individual patient, then I think we should also feel as though there's a way for us to make that case to law enforcement to, to change you know, physical restraint policies for somebody in such a situation. And, and uh, one thing we want to emphasize is definitely decisions to ask the provider or law enforcement official to leave the bedside or to change the restraints should be part of a conversation about with the law enforcement enforcement officials of, of like what is safe, what is appropriate. You know, we had providers who told us there were scenarios where they felt very unsafe in a room and there was no law enforcement officials there. So there is kind of a balancing uh, need for this. Clearly, you know, you need to ask if it's if it's like safe in their assessment to have the patient unrestrained or for them to leave the room because you know, we don't want people getting hurt, um, you know, out of trying to be uh, uh, do ethical behavior. However, the only, you know, we, we discussed this uh, paper with many legal experts, uh, judges, lawyers, um, you know, people who have written uh, texts on this topic. And the only scenario we could come up with where there's a clear, clearly defined like case law or policy is for women who are deliver in active labor and delivering. In that scenario, the um, medical team can remove restraints without any uh, concern about you know being obstructed by law enforcement officials uh, if they feel like it's appropriate. That's the only patient population where that's allowed, though, which is strange because we deal with patients that are often yeah in a you know unconscious uh, and yet they're restrained. And, and I think you know for me this um, particular story was hit home uh, because there's a patient to care of in residency who, you know, Chris, you mentioned that you've often been able to ask and, and navigate this as a resident. I wasn't so bold and I had a patient in the ICU at one of our County hospitals who, you know, passed away, you know, was ventilated for respiratory failure and ultimately passed away. And it wasn't until her family came in and saw her in like leather restraints, her, her body in leather restraints tied to the bed that they were like, why, why is she still, restrained and tied to the bed? Why was she restrained to the bed this whole time? And we had no answer. And, and, and a lot of us, me, the attending, the fellow, none of us had even asked. And it was, I still regret that. I mean, and I talked to the attending who I now is one of my colleagues and, and he regrets it too. We both never even thought to ask because it's just this, you know, we're physicians are people who generally follow the rules and who um, are good members of society. And, and I think we're just trained that when someone in power tells you this is what you need to do, you know, we, we sort of defer. Um, and, and that, you know, again, that's what creates some of these senses of regret and that we're trying to also deal with along with promoting ethical treatment of our patients. And, and I think a lot of those feelings also probably arise from the fact that we try to be empathic, that we, we want to connect with our patients. We want to know what's going on with them. That's actually part of taking good care of them. Um, and these obviously are can be tricky situations to navigate. Um, Kathleen, you were mentioning sometimes it depends on whether or not they've been arrested versus convicted. To what extent should we be trying to figure that out? Should we be asking about their sort of legal status? Should we be inquiring about what they got arrested for or what they've been convic convicted of? I, I think... Um... Chris, that I, I would generally advise against inquiring what the nature of the crime is. I think that it really sets us up to 
potentially provide less quality service for our patients. If we are starting to hear various allegations or charges against someone that isn't necessarily proven and frankly should not influence the way that we treat them as a patient, they can, the patient can, can also have a legal status that's under question, but also be our patient. And I think that anything that's going to interfere in our ability to do that in the highest caliber way is just going to be, um, you know, it is unacceptable for our profession, but I also can understand there's, there's curiosity associated with it. There's, you know, self-preservation that we have to think about how violent somebody may or may not have been. So I also can appreciate why it's hard to even know how to ask these questions and to know how to, how to work through it. And I think that's where, you know, we strongly urge institutions to think about having some sort of teams stood up to help bedside providers address these questions in the moment so that it's, you know, kind of keeping everybody protected and assuring that we can fulfill our clinical obligations to our patients. And I want to second that and say, you know, I think that one of the cases that we thought about as we were writing this was Alex Wubbles, who's the nurse in Utah, who, um, you know, tried to tell police that because a patient was charged and not convicted, certain policies and rules applied to that patient. And um, I think that is, you know, in some states and some jurisdictions and some healthcare systems, there are different rules uh, for these different patient populations. And so I agree that it's important to know that aspect of the status, but, you know, I can think back to patients that I've taken care of and almost universally, the gossip among the residents has been what they were convicted of or what they've been charged of. And I, I can't recall ever feeling like that knowledge made me provide better care or made me any safer. Um, I, I don't, as a healthcare, as a doctor, I don't feel like I'm really good at assessing how threatening someone is, you know, um, that's not what I'm trained to do. And so like, you know, you could argue that, like Kathleen said, you should know what someone, one could argue that you should know what someone's convicted of to adequately kind of prepare yourself and, and think about your own safety. But I would argue that like, again, just a, a, a reasonable, like, and, 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 you know, conversation with the law enforcement officials at bedside to say like, you know, am I in danger? Like, is it okay for me to go in? Like, is this probably enough? Um, because otherwise, yeah, you're risking bias. Yeah, and in my experience, there's certainly the, the officers accompanying the patients oftentimes have knowledge of their risk to providers, um, and that and that that risk is often commensurate with their presence at the bedside, or how many of them are there, or what measures they um, recommend that we take with them. So, um, yeah, it's certainly uh, difficult to navigate, um, but I, I think like both of you have said, thinking about things, um, just actually just taking some time to think about what is this information going to do for me or how is it going to influence my care um, may tell us what we should be doing as our next steps. And a little bit of, of thought um, can actually go a long way. Uh, but I, I think it's also that we uh, important that we talk about where we should be applying a lot of bit of thought um, and, and where sort of institutions should be thinking about this at the higher level. Um, obviously, there's jurisdictional differences across the country, um, even within states. Um, but what are some of the broad policy gaps here that we have in healthcare? Um, and what are some of the um, fixes uh, that, that you all um, recommend after um, diving into this topic? I think, Chris, that, that part of what we could do is, is 
try to think about crafting a checklist for how these types of um, involvements and, and presence at the bedside could be done and assuring that there's a routine revisiting in, informed by the clinical status for the patient, as well as in whatever capacity relevant their legal issues may or may not be. Um, we seek to be able to build better relationships in the hospital for patients who are in custody, but also make sure that we're protecting our patients. And so we, we certainly don't intend this to be antagonistic, but also want to make sure that we're, that, that we're asking the right questions of, of law enforcement and repeatedly reevaluating whether this is something that we can change in order to maximize patients' privacy. And so I think that, that having um, you know, professional societies also come together and work with legal experts, accounting for differences across different, um, different states and jurisdictions regarding how this could look. But I think that, that a sort of um, routine assessment of risk for patient, risk for providers, risk for law enforcement would be a, a kind of low-hanging fruit that we could probably do you know, today. I don't know, Matt, what other yeah. thoughts you have? Well, no, I think that's a, you know, a great first step and, and um, is thinking locally and making you know, just a, a summary of what we know um, and what policies we should abide by. But you know, we're hoping also to you know, that each hospital or healthcare system will proactively engage with law enforcement in their area um, to set kind of standards of norms. Because again, often there are no, pol- I mean, we, what we found writing this paper is there are no policies. The, the case law is, is few and far between, particularly once a patient leaves the ER. There's a lot of things about these sort of time-sensitive labs and time-sensitive uh, sort of care or information the police need. But once that is no longer relevant, there's almost no guidance of, of what should be done or, or who should be, you know, what, what rules apply. And that, that's kind of what set, made us want to write this paper. And we found that, you know, um, often there's a sense that, you know, the ethics team operates uh, in, within a hospital and answers many of these questions, but they operate independently of things like, you know, the, the local law enforcement environment. And so we propose in the paper that in order to create kind of more, um, you know, patient-centered, provider-centered, kind of more thoughtful solutions, there needs to be proactive engagement that's ongoing between local hospital or health system officials and law enforcement so that, again, these situations can be reviewed maybe on a daily basis, you know, when, when, when there's a relevant patient in the hospital or, you know, um, policies can be updated for the hospital as, thing, you know, based off interactions with the local law enforcement environment. Again, just the idea being that these solutions are not made one off, that e- each scenario is a new totally new situation for the providers and for law enforcement officials. So there are norms and there's a, again, a, a board. I think, you know, we, Kathleen and I talked about crisis standards of care during COVID, right? Like we said that these decisions should not be made at the bedside by providers, like who gets a ventilator, who doesn't get a ventilator, who gets admitted, who doesn't. These are made by committees that the hospital has established that create ethical norms and, and, and abide by them. And we propose something similar for these type of situations where the provider at bedside isn't having to decide, you know, do I call the, you know, the police of chief, the chief of police has just texted me asking for an update on this patient. Like, is it my response? How did he get my number? Is it my responsibility? This is what's something that happened to one of our providers. Like, is this my responsibility to be texting back and forth with the chief of police or, you know, who do I even ask if this is okay? Like, again, just somebody removed from the bedside that kind of, you know, makes these decisions. That's, that's not really a policy, um, you know, like in sort of national or state level, it needs to be done, but it's something that health systems should see parallels in what we've been doing for the last two years in terms of how do we remove these tough decisions from 
being one-off provider decisions that lead to regret and guilt into a more standardized process. And we're coming up on time. Uh, so as we close, do uh, maybe from each of you sort of a one sentence single take-home point that you hope people take from uh, this podcast uh, as they go about their practice. We'll start with you, Kathleen. Um, I think that we should just never forget our obligations to be advocates for our patients, no matter what their status is, what their history is outside of the hospital walls, and that we have a lot of work to do to continue to optimize people's care in the ICU, um, even when they have legal interactions that might be um, unsavory. Great. And Matt, any further thoughts to close things out? Yeah, I would just say, don't be afraid or feel like it's not your place to talk to law enforcement officials at your patient's bedside. I feel, again, just deferring to them is, uh, is, is okay um, in certain scenarios, but it's worth uh, talking to them and, and understanding where they're coming from and letting them understand where you're coming from. And, and I feel like, you know, these are often reasonable people. Um, we found that some of our patients had tremendously great interactions with the law enforcement officials at their bedside or the, the chaplains from the law enforcement community that were brought in to be with them. But, um, but just blind deference is probably not in anyone's best interest. There's yours, the patients. And so conversations are important. Great. Thank you. So we've, had a really nice discussion with Dr. Kathleen Atkin and Dr. Matt Griffith today. Their paper, Profiling, Privacy and Protection, Ethical Guidance When Police Are Present at the Bedside, will be published soon in the Annals of ATS.